Hey, just a heads up before we start that this is the second episode in a two-part story. So if you did not hear last week's episode titled Breaking the Oath, you should definitely do that first. In that last show, we introduced you to Tasha Adams, who was married to Stuart Rhodes. He's the guy who started the Oath Keepers, the group primarily responsible for the January 6th attack on the Capitol. He's currently on trial for seditious conspiracy. Tasha grew up in a strict Mormon family, and she'd met Stuart when she was just 18 and he was 25. She was a dance instructor in Las Vegas, and he was a military veteran and her student. At first, it felt like this daring romance. But over time, he'd convinced her to do things she didn't actually want, like drop out of college and put him through school by stripping. Once they got married, Tasha gave up pursuing a career to support Stuart's. He graduated from Yale Law School and made decent money, but he'd often spend their income on stuff for himself instead, leaving Tasha and their six children in poverty. For years, Tasha and the kids put up with the twists and turns that Stuart forced on them. They tried to believe him when he said that things would change. But often Tasha's only escape was in her daydreams. What if... What if I had done something differently? You know, what if, what if I had married someone different and all these kids were with someone else? And I would definitely have fantasies about, about like, um, being with someone who supported me while I was giving birth or holding my hand or, or you know, bringing me breakfast once in a while. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are pretty simple fantasies, but I would really get lost in, in, and I could not see myself as that person because it felt, um, it hurt too much to think of that. It hurt too much to think of a life different from the one she was living. That is until Stuart would push Tasha and their kids to their absolute breaking point. I'm Marie Mechreis, and you're listening to This is Uncomfortable, a show for Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. Today on the show, part two of Tasha's story, a story of false hope and manipulation, of what happened not only in their marriage, but to the country, as Stuart orchestrated an army of people to financially support him and his vision. Where we left off, Stewart had just begun his political career. He'd worked for Congressman Ron Paul and was on the verge of starting his own organization. And Tasha saw this as an opportunity. Maybe this would be their ticket to a more comfortable life. So that night, back in 2009, when Stewart was just about to launch the website for the Oath Keepers, Tasha tried to be supportive. I said, wow, this is going to be big. He seemed to understand something I didn't, that this was a huge moment. He seemed so positive that the second he hit publish, everything would change. And it happened pretty much right away. Once he hit publish on March 8, 2009, the post quickly drew hundreds of comments. Eventually, he got invited to go on The O'Reilly Show on Fox News. He got invited to go on Chris Matthews' Hardball Show. But we start with the Oath Keepers. Stuart Rhodes is the founder of the Oath Keepers. We've got Stuart Rhodes, Yale Law graduate, one of Ron Paul's staff members. Joining us now from Washington, Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, who served as a paratrooper in the Army. You may have seen pictures or videos of Stuart over the years. He's a big guy, has a notable black eye patch, and a tattoo of the U.S. Constitution on his left arm. 
On April 19th, he held the Oath Keepers' first rally, a sort of launch party. I'm Stuart Rhodes. I'm the founder of Oath Keepers. I served as a paratrooper in the U.S. Army. (laughs) Well, you're an easy crowd, I tell you. It was held at Lexington Green, Massachusetts, which was on the site and the 234th anniversary of the first shots fired in the American Revolution. You don't have a right to disobey unlawful orders. You have a duty, a duty to disobey unlawful orders. It's a duty. While today the Oath Keepers is widely considered to be an extremist group, their original philosophy had some broader appeal. It was committed to defending the Constitution, something a lot of Americans believe in, at least conceptually. According to Tasha, Stewart likened the group to the libertarian version of the ACLU. Like one of their orders forbids searches without a warrant, something that organizations like the ACLU were also fighting at the time. In early interviews, Rhodes said that he hoped to encourage police to think twice before conducting unconstitutional searches. He claimed to loathe white supremacy and said he had no plans to overthrow the government. In those earliest days, the organization vowed to protect the Constitution from both Republicans and Democrats. Thousands of people wrote to Stewart, people who also started sending in money. Within a couple of weeks, Stewart and Tasha had $70,000 sitting in their PayPal account. I remember I paid the power bill past due, paid the rent, um, got our car title back from the car loan people. <laughs> and were you thinking at this point, after dealing with so much financial stress, like, okay, this is, maybe this will help Yes, our situation. Like, this yes. is how he'll be able to provide for us. I really thought, you know, if we can, if I can keep a handle on this, then it'll be okay. But as the money started to pile up, so did Stewart's ambitions. And according to their oldest child, Dakota, Stewart suddenly thought he could fulfill this vision of himself as a revolutionary leader. When I was very little, I looked up to him. I thought that the mission and Stewart's role in American history was important. I thought he was going to be president, which was always one of his uh, quieter ambitions. Pretty quickly, the initial idea for the Oath Keepers didn't feel like enough. The original website was essentially just a declaration, an oath for people to commit to, and some merch they could buy. And then he started talking about taking memberships. Memberships. The first time Stuart brought it up, they were standing in the kitchen. Tasha was cooking. And Stuart told her he wanted to take the Oath Keepers to the next level, to create chapters across the country where members would not only declare their commitment, but also pay dues. He said, you know how much more money we could make? How much more money we could bring in if we took memberships? People want to join. And that's when things kind of turned Yeah, and then I said, I can't. I just can't. Tasha had been silent through so many things. Because, you know, she hates confrontation with anyone, especially him. But this felt like a line they should not cross. It's one thing to have people just emailing saying, hey, we agree with your cause. But to formally organize a group of potentially angry, militarily and police-trained people? Like, what if they commit a violent act, she asked Stuart. We, our family, you and I, could be held responsible. Until then, she'd been essentially the project manager for the Oath Keepers. She'd ship out t-shirts to folks who donated, collecting the orders, going to the post office, and responding to dozens of emails a day. But she had real reservations with this new idea. So for one of the very few times in their marriage, 
She told him, no, I'm out. And it was really hard, very hard for me to say no to him, very hard for, for me to tell him, but I need to back away. She told him, you know, maybe it wasn't a wife's job to be doing such important work, that maybe it's even a little inappropriate. Stewart had strong opinions about a woman's role versus a man's. He seemed to buy it and decided he'd replace her and relegate her to the background. They didn't like me talking with anyone else. Yeah. You know, even you have Oathkeeper people over at the house. He would not let me talk directly to anyone. You know, I would come to the table and say, does anyone want coffee? But I'd have to look at Stuart. And then Stuart would turn to everyone and say, does any, you guys want her to get you a cup of coffee? In one sense, being out was a relief. In another, it meant she had less and less ability to influence this group she was more and more concerned might be going off the rails. The organization kept mushrooming. At its peak, it had 40,000 members who paid an annual fee of $50. And as the Oath Keepers grew, the world of Tasha and her children shrank. Stewart became increasingly suspicious and distrustful of the government. In some speeches, he'd even talk about an impending race war. Obama is not a, a unifier. He's the most divisive president this country has ever seen. He would love nothing better than see a race war. He would love to see that. And that's what I think he's trying to do. And Stewart's persecution complex, the feeling of him against the world, only intensified. And now that he was vocally opposing the government, he was sure it was coming to get him. So he decided to take his family to a place where they would be very hard to find. But of course, a place that's difficult to get to can also be difficult to leave. Stewart moved their family to an isolated log cabin in the middle of Montana with very few windows. It was just, I mean, there's no neighbors. Um, 75 miles away or so was the nearest emergency room. The grocery store was a 45-minute drive. The kids were still homeschooled, so their entire world was their cabin, or rather the basement of the cabin. Stuart and Tasha had the bedroom upstairs, and the six kids stayed in the basement, which was unfinished. So essentially, they were just in one big room. Her son Dakota watched as Tasha tried to make the best of it. She tried to divide it up, give them some semblance of personal space, using bookshelves. Freestanding bookshelves put back to back so they were harder to knock over, so they were less likely to fall on people. And curtains hung up. Stuart would tell Tasha and the kids, don't worry, we're going to eventually renovate the basement. That never happened and wouldn't have been feasible anyway because it flooded every year. The electricity ran through tubes on the outside of the cabin, and there was just one wooden stove for heat. So it was always freezing down there. Everybody's just cold. Everything's cold. I remember thinking it felt like we would never be warm again. They only had one toilet for the eight of them, and the plumbing was spotty, so they'd sometimes have to grab a can of bear spray and go to the bathroom in the woods. Their food was spotty, too. Sometimes Stuart would bring home huge amounts of groceries, but most times he'd be gone, traveling for the Oath Keepers, and he wouldn't leave or send them any money. So they'd have empty cabinets and once again eat mostly oatmeal and apple chips. I will never voluntarily eat a piece of dried apple ever again as long as I live. Meanwhile, the Oath Keepers were getting more and more attention. They were traveling to protests across the country as sort of volunteer armed citizen police, including when they formed their own patrol during the protests in Ferguson, Missouri. Emerging from the shadows, new to the neighborhood, men who call themselves Oath Keepers. Members of the Oath Keepers, a right-wing organization, walked the streets carrying personal firearms on Monday night. 
The Oath Keepers are standing watch at recruitment centers to guard the servicemen and women they say are not allowed to protect themselves. Most notably, in 2014, the Oath Keepers joined militia groups in a standoff against federal agents at Bundy Ranch in Nevada. The government had seized the Bundy family's cattle because of unpaid grazing fees, and the Bundys called on militia groups to join them in an armed standoff to try and get their cattle back. After four days, federal agents backed down, handing the Oath Keepers and the militia movement what felt like a huge victory. And this was a first step. It was a watershed moment. We're taking a stand that others around here would not take. It felt like validation. Like, see, we can stand up to the government and win. Stewart started traveling all around the country, meeting members and attending events. And while his kids shivered in the basement with their apple chips, Stewart was taking the money now pouring in from members and buying first-class tickets, all on the Oath Keeper's dime, sometimes flying into a specific airport in Colorado just to eat steaks at his favorite restaurant. He made those expenses look like they were always travel expenses or somehow Oath Keeper related. It was always kind of unclear what was an Oath Keeper's expense and what was his own money, which was which was intentionally by him kept very vague. The only person who really knows where all of the group's money went is Stuart Rhodes. That last voice is Rebecca Ballhouse. I'm a reporter on the Wall Street Journal's investigations team. Rebecca and her colleagues talked with several former members of the Oath Keepers board and sifted through the group's bank records. It was hard to nail down the exact financial picture with so many branches and so many states and such convoluted financial records. But one thing was very clear. There was a difference between uh, what they said they were using those dues for and what they were actually using the dues for. There was a huge difference. He was spending the group's money on haircuts, on liquor, on storable food reserves, on personal riot gear. He bought a lot of military equipment, an inordinate amount of stakes, also exercise equipment. An auto repair shop where he spent more than $12,000, a pet store, a dentist, a bar, a gun store, a lingerie, an adult goods shop called Alley Cats, Nighties, and Naughties. He even spent money on an online perfume shop. The list sort of went on and on. Stewart's spending led to lots of confrontations with the board. Tasha says the treasurer would always yell at Stewart for taking out too many cash withdrawals. Several board members got so fed up that they left the organization. Meanwhile, back at home, Tasha and the kids felt stuck, subject to the same erratic behavior but with nowhere to go, living in that tiny basement with all the piles of things Stewart was buying with that money. It felt like the walls were closing in on them, not just emotionally, but physically. He was definitely a hoarder. The worse things got, the more he hoarded. Mounds of boxes, of bags, of survival knives. I knew it wasn't normal to be tripping over piles of survival gear when we couldn't afford to take anyone to the dentist for years on end. And I had no way of dealing with it. And all I could do was just help keep up the facade and conceal it from outsiders. It was easy to conceal their situation, so far isolated in the woods. The kids were all still homeschooled. Playdates and prom were swapped out for apocalypse training and militia drills. But it wasn't just the physical isolation that kept Dakota and Tasha from speaking up, as it was the world Stuart built in their heads. Stuart told them of a terrifying outside world, a world that was out to get the whole family, and Stuart specifically, especially if anyone thought that the Rhodes household was anything 
but idyllic. We would all be immediately seized by Child Protective Services and thrown into foster care homes full of rapists uh, because the government was just waiting to eliminate the number one threat to the New World Order, Stuart Rhodes, and would use Child Protective Services as an attack avenue, if at all possible. Dakota had internalized his father's fears and had convinced himself that any hardship he was experiencing It was because his dad had been through much worse. I blamed myself for all the times that Stuart would be emotionally abusive or angry or violent in the house and thought it was just because I was a bad son and wasn't uh, being understanding enough of Stuart's own damage from his childhood. Much like Tasha, Dakota hoped that if he could just love and support Stuart enough— Maybe eventually he'd transform into the caring father he'd always wanted. Dakota would sometimes accompany Stewart to Oathkeeper conventions. He'd play secretary by manning the group's email account and even translate his father's rambling manifestos into the Oathkeeper's newsletter. I was still desperately attempting to salvage a father-son relationship and gain his approval. And maybe things would have stayed like that everyone tripping over Stuart's survival gear and tiptoeing around his anger. But as Dakota got older, he started getting out of the house more. He joined a volunteer fire department and met people who didn't hoard military equipment or know anything about militias. I was increasingly surrounded by people who were not obsessed with the coming end the way that everyone I knew growing up was. Of all of Tasha's kids, the oldest ones had bought into Stuart's way of thinking the most. Tasha says that's because early on in her marriage, she was insistent that Stuart be more involved. I was still trying to force or teach or mold Stuart somehow into being a dad. Hmm. And so he definitely had more psychological control over their lives because there was still a dad role with with them. But by the time her younger kids were born, Tasha had started losing all faith in Stuart. So she didn't push her younger kids to look up to him. In fact, she was unable to hide her own disappointment. So unlike Dakota, the younger kids had never fully bought into Stuart's wild theories and his belief that only he could save them all. One of the kids, in a desperate attempt to escape, had even built a tiny shelter outside of the cabin made entirely out of debris. They had known that Stuart was a terrible person and a monster for a long time. When I started talking more with my siblings and, like, we compared notes, I realized that our living situation was insane and began the plotting. Plotting their escape. That's after the break. At first, the kids kept a potential escape plan just between themselves. They weren't sure their mom would be on board. They wanted to have it all nailed down before they considered approaching her. So Dakota and his siblings started to hatch a plan without Tasha, very quietly. Dakota was 19 by then and earning his own money as a firefighter. So the plan was that I would move out and establish a living situation, and then one by one, the younger siblings would move out as soon as they had an excuse to, and come live with me, and we would uh, kind of daisy-chain our way out of the household. 
Tasha, on the other hand, though overwhelmed and in despair about their situation, felt like she couldn't leave. She was afraid Stuart would hurt the kids. He'd tell her, don't even think about it. I'd get full custody. After all, I have a Yale law degree. And Tasha hated to think of Stuart having endless, unsupervised time with the children. But in the end, it was actually Stuart who convinced her that she had no choice. The biggest turning point was when he choked my daughter, um, Sequoia. Um, I think she was about 14. And um, I was in the house. I remember seeing her moving across the porch and him on the other side of her. And he's like pushing her across the porch. And then I hear Dakota scream, don't choke my sister. And I, although I picture myself being on the other side of the house, the kids say I was closer to that. It's very hard for me to remember things accurately because I disassociate so much. that Sometimes I remember the scene from out of the room and I think Mm -hmm. I'm out of the room, but I was actually there. So that was, that was the moment of we're either going to die here or die getting out. You know, it's one or the other. We're going to we're gonna die either way. You know, somebody's going to die either way. After that, Tasha came over to the kids' side. It was time to find a way out. We all kind of gathered in what we called Dakota's room, which, of course, nobody had rooms. Just areas segregated by bookshelves and blankets. The kids told their mom about their plan, that they couldn't continue to live this way. Dakota even said, you know, eventually you're going to lose us which was my greatest fear, of course. Tasha was shocked to hear that they'd been conspiring to leave, that they'd actually want a life without their dad. I still had this idea that kids would not want a divorce. I don't know why. I don't know why. I I still thought that. It seemed impossible. Mm -hmm. But then they said they'd help. And, um, And I said, okay. And with that... Tasha and the kids began planning their own revolution, all the while keeping it secret from the man who lived just up the stairs. Dakota had been working a few months in his firefighting job by then and had made enough to buy a car. So great, that was at least out of the way. They had transportation to get out physically. But what would happen after they leave? They need to sever the legal ties. I was saving up every penny that I could from my fire checks to get a down payment for a divorce lawyer. They also figured that Tasha would be entitled to half the value of Stewart's rifles in a divorce. So this is where Stewart's hoarding turned into an upside. They started sneaking rifles out of his piles of weapons and secretly selling them, one by one. Also, Stewart banishing them all to the basement came in handy too. Gave them a place to assess their plan in secret without setting off Stewart's alarm bells. We would just say, okay, we got this much. And Dakota would say, well, I've got a check coming in for this much. And... You know, I'd say, well, what about this? Can we sell this? You know, and what about these rifles? It felt like the plan was working, but it required a lot of patience. If they moved with too much urgency, sold too many rifles, Stuart might notice. Also, practically speaking, even if they could pay a lawyer, finding one who'd take the case was proving to be difficult. Nobody wanted to take on someone who not only had a law degree, but also his own personal army. And they didn't have cell service at the cabin, so they'd have to drive 20 miles to make any calls or check their messages. Like, it was, an, it would take me weeks to get in touch with one lawyer to have them say sorry, no. All the while, they were going the extra mile to keep Stuart happy. Once again, what had been difficult about Stuart for so long became helpful now. He was a man with a bottomless need for adoration. 
I would send him uh, gushing text messages telling him he was doing a real important thing and I loved him and missed him. And uh, stay safe out there and God be with you. I would just think, what is, what from this, the next 30 seconds, you know, everything in my power to make him as happy as he could possibly be, you know, yeah. should I rub his feet? Should I bring him coffee? Should I bring him a beer? Should I, you know, what can I do? Yeah, that's exhausting. In the midst of this anxious secrecy, piled on top of all the existing tension that living in Stuart's kingdom brought on, one day Tasha stumbled on an unexpected sort of symbol of hope. A reminder of what she wanted before Stuart waltzed into her life and what she could maybe have if their plan worked out. I found a, a sounds silly, found a, um, a pillow in a thrift store, a throw pillow with a, a picture of a bicycle on it. And it said, every day an adventure. Mm. And something about that seems so incredible. The idea that... Um, that life could, there could be some adventure in life, that there could be, you know, bike rides or, you know, going out and getting a cup of coffee or just little, I couldn't think about the big things. As small as it sounds, small was exactly where she needed to keep her focus. Zooming out felt like it would topple her, not just the anxiety of trying to escape, but building a whole new life from scratch. I couldn't think about, you know, kids going to school or making friends or, or you know, starting a new career or, you know, things like that. Yeah. I had to just focus on tiny, tiny things. Tasha became fiercely protective of the pillow, as if it was the fragile first piece of a new life without Stuart. I put it in my closet. I didn't want him touching it. It, sounds, mm. it was almost a sacred object to me. It was just I looked at something about it. It just inspired me. And um, I just, uh, yeah, I didn't want him near it. I even um, picked up a couple of, of blankets that I just kind of put away. And um, yeah, I just didn't want him touching anything I was going to sleep on when he was gone. As they neared their escape, Tasha and the kids got bolder and bolder. I took the night vision right off of one of his rifles and hope that he didn't notice. I mean, he had it by his desk, and I actually did sell it. That was like the last thing we needed before we sort of pulled the plug. Finally, just a couple weeks after she sold that night vision, the day arrived. February 12th, 2018. They'd chosen the day carefully. And the reason why we chose February is we did a lot of research into mm -hmm. not dying. We called it the trying not to die plan. Oh, you had a name for it. Yep. Their research had told them that holiday seasons were dangerous, that abusive spouses were more likely to be homicidal if their family left close to a holiday. And I was kind of pushing the line because it was nearing Valentine's Day, but honestly, I couldn't stomach another Valentine's Day with him. I just didn't want to be. I just couldn't. The night before the escape, to keep him happy and calm, Tasha suggested she and Stuart go out for a nice dinner. We went out and we had an evening out. Um, we came home. Tasha went to sleep that night with her stomach in knots. She barely slept, thinking about how the next day would unfold. They planned to get out while Stuart was still in bed. And by three in the morning, I could hear, you know, Iron Maiden blasting. And, oh, oh no, here we go. Stuart was in a frenzy, listening to music and working out. 
These bouts could last for days at a time. He's in the living room, flinging sticks around and, and jump roping and oh, what the heck? And then I think, how the heck are we going to get out now? He's not going to sleep. He may not sleep for days now. We're all so paranoid that he would somehow sense that something was wrong. He's wandering around the house doing stuff nonstop. We can't get out without him seeing. There in the cold basement, surrounded by military surplus bags of survival equipment, those rickety bookshelves, listening to Stuart bouncing around the house like a pinball to the rhythm of heavy metal music, it felt like maybe they'd have to call the plan off. But by then, bigger than Tasha's fear was her resolve. She just kept remembering the thought she had after Stuart choked her daughter, Sequoia. We're either going to die here or die getting out. You know, it's one or the other. We're going we're gonna to die either way. When Tasha and the kids passed each other in the cabin, they'd whisper that the plan was still on. Dakota kicked it into motion. I was like, I'm just, I'm just carrying out the guns, get ready to go. In some ways, the heightened stakes just made Dakota bolder. I started picking up rifles and just literally smuggling them out the front door underneath clothes and in stuff tucked in my hands or sometimes just uh, concealed behind my body where he wouldn't see it. Dakota told his dad that they were all going to take some trash out to the dump. His truck was already preloaded with most of their things. But as they were about to take their final steps out of the house, Dakota remembered one last gun that could bring in a lot of money. His favorite, which was the uh, Israeli-made copy of the AK-47, the Galil rifle, which was effectively his baby. It was ridiculously expensive. I walked right past him, grabbed his favorite rifle, and turned around with it clutched to my chest. With the rifle clutched under a trash bag, he walked past Stuart to get out the door. You know, it's like jumping off a diving board or stepping onto the mat at a big martial arts competition. Just got to do it without hesitating. Because hesitating will make you look weird and act weird. Tasha and the kids were watching him from the truck, holding their breath. I just remember being so afraid. I was just shaking all over, and he just walked out. Stuart didn't bat an eye as Dakota joined the rest of the family in his truck. Just in complete terror, like the kids ducked down in the back seat so that he couldn't see that they were in the car and get suspicious. Dakota put the truck in reverse and started backing out of the driveway. And then he, that's when Stuart stepped out of the house and he said, hey. And we turned around, what, 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 like, yeah? And the kids are just like, oh my God, oh my God. We stopped the car and I rolled out my window, still acting casual. Acting casual, but Dakota's brain was racing. Is Stuart about to start shooting? If he does, what do I do? He started calculating. Okay, the only other vehicle Stuart could use to chase us is old and falling apart. If Stuart decides to get in the car, drive towards us, and start shooting, I'll be able to outdrive him. I can break line of sight so that he won't be able to shoot at us while he's driving. But then he said, hey, pick up some steaks while you're out. We'll have a nice dinner tonight. He asks us to stop at the convenience store up by the highway and grab him a package of steaks while we're out. Dakota nearly had to stifle a laugh. To him, 
This was the perfect ending. I know he was going out and like getting fast food and eating at goddamn Applebee's while the rest of us were eating only oatmeal for months on end. And sometimes on the verge of going hungry when the oatmeal was in danger of running out. And I thought it was just poetic justice that he was asking us to pick up his steak and all he was going to get was a restraining order. But for Tasha, that final moment was a little more complicated. He actually smiled a little bit, which he almost never did. And when he did, she felt something unexpected. She felt guilty. For a moment, he seemed like someone else, normal husband expecting a nice, normal evening with his family. And for some reason, that still deeply bothers me, that he thought he was going to have a nice meal that night, and instead, his whole world disappeared. Even though he had caused so much pain to my kids and to me, and to everyone around, to the entire country, frankly. And yet, it still bothers me. It was hard to stop feeling something that he'd spent decades drilling into her. Obligation and guilt. She had no doubt that this was the right decision, the only decision that might give them the very thing Stuart had obsessively preached at them for years. A chance of survival. But in that moment, she got her first clue to just how much Stuart had gotten to her over the course of their marriage. Leaving him and the memory of him behind wasn't something that was going to happen instantaneously. That day after they left, Tasha ended up calling Stuart to let him know that she was divorcing him. She told him it was because she found evidence in his phone that he was cheating again, which was true, but also the last thing on her mind. He chuckled at her. She also told him they'd planned to get a restraining order. And he said, do not file any paperwork. I know what that means. I know what that means. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't. And he was just almost begging, do not file a restraining order. He knew it could mean that he'd have to give up his guns. The restraining order was actually denied, but the fear of it was enough to get Stuart out of the house. So later that day, they were able to return home. But it was hard to feel any sense of relief just yet. I didn't feel truly safe for weeks or months, and the background anxiety didn't go away until we moved to a different house where he didn't know where we lived. There was never a liberating moment of we're finally free. It's been more than four years since they drove down that driveway. The divorce is still stalled out in court. Tasha has only seen Stuart in a courtroom since then. For a while, the kids would occasionally visit Stuart in a public setting or under a counselor's supervision. But those visits eventually stopped. Meanwhile, Tasha kept following Stuart's activity online. And that's when she noticed his fervor was only intensifying. He wasn't just talking about the Constitution anymore. He was talking an insurrection. The day of the Capitol riots, Tasha watched along with the rest of the country. She sat at her kitchen table with her laptop. I saw a clip on Reddit. And it was just somebody saying, what the hell is this? That's not the military. And it was the clip of what people are now calling the stack, which is the guys with the hands on the shoulders in a military formation going up steps like a snake creeping up, you know, through the crowd. She took a closer look. And that's when it hit her. And immediately that was that was the huge moment for me. That was the moment I just sort of sat down and I just took a breath because that I knew immediately that that was Stuart's doing. 
Mm. I, I, the proud boys don't gear up in military formation with, with radios and, you know, they're just street brawlers. This, this was Stuart. This was a professional military. This was a professional yeah. private military. And, and then of course, a moment later, you get my breath, zoom in on the picture. And of course, all their gear reads Oath Keepers. Stewart was arrested and charged with seditious conspiracy for his involvement. His trial is currently underway. During the trial, a new recording came to light of Stewart saying that his only regret was that they should have brought rifles. Tasha wonders now who Stewart would have been were it not for her constant financial and emotional support. Would he have been just a two-bit grifter and not the perpetrator of an insurrection? She can't know. And of course, what Stewart chose to do was always his choice, not hers. She tries to remember that. But one thing she does know for sure now, that huge chip on Stuart's shoulder, his constant pounding into her, that his life had been terrible and hers had been great, and therefore she owed him all that she had, that was a lie. You don't owe it to the world to marry someone broken. You know, you don't have to fix someone. You can, it's okay to be with a healthy person. You don't owe something to the world because you were the, the youngest kid in, the, in a big family who, who got all the attention. You, know, you, don't, mm. you don't owe a debt to the entire planet of trying to repair someone. Yeah. You know, you, it's okay to have been loved as a kid and to have been a little indulged as a kid. You, know? <laughs> you can pay that back in other ways. Tasha is no longer silent. She's using every chance she has to tell the world who Stuart really is. She works entry-level, low-paying jobs to help make ends meet, and she set up a GoFundMe to help cover legal expenses from the divorce, which has driven her into debt. She feels like she has the financial knowledge of a 19-year-old, something she's trying to get better at. And right now, she's living in a two-bedroom apartment with her younger kids. It's actually really beautiful. It's, it's a rental, but it's, you know, it's, it's certainly a little rundown. <laughs> but um, there's windows, mm. which is amazing. It's, it is probably the most beautiful place I've ever lived. She's got a kitchen with a double sink, a working faucet, two bathrooms, and she's got that bicycle throw pillow resting on her couch or sometimes on her bed. After Tasha met Stuart, she gave up her dreams in order to help fulfill his. And recently, she's been trying to take at least a piece of that dream back. I hadn't danced a step, honestly, since the day I got married. And so that was one of the first things is we took dance classes again. She's not doing ballroom anymore, though. This class is women only. Um, and it was really... It was really emotional for me, you know, after a few weeks of class where people say, you know, you're a professional dancer, aren't you? And it was just like they asked me that as a given. And I, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't heard those words in a lot of years. Those words surprised Tasha. She felt like she was struggling through the dance class. This part of her that she'd left so far behind. Was it really still there? I don't think I've gotten through a dance class without secretly tearing up for one reason or another just because it's so, you know, just so emotional because that was something that I, you know, wanted to do with my life. Tasha and her kids still sometimes have nightmares about Stuart, that he's been released from prison and is looking for them. They'll also sometimes send pictures in their family group chat of complete strangers, 
Doesn't this guy in the supermarket look and dress like Stuart, they'll ask? Thank God it's not him. But as exciting as the new things are that Tasha's brought into her life, you know, the new apartment, the dance lessons, in some sense, it's what she's left behind that's really made her feel free. It's more of just this absence of of stress. And you just sort of are. Just the idea of just being, you know, without the constant fear and anxiety. And when you just let it all go, it's almost like you forget that it ever was. And, you know, you know that it was there, but you just take a breath and it's just, you know, ah, I just am. She'd forgotten that things could feel this way. During her marriage, every time she tried to get her life and finances under control, she'd quickly find that Stuart had yanked the reins away from her. She no longer feels this weight, an intense preoccupation with someone else's needs or what the next day might bring. Now, when she thinks about her future, sure, there's worry, but it's not all-consuming. She'd done something seemingly impossible when she first met Stuart, venturing out in a world that felt unfamiliar, potentially thrilling. And she's done the far more unthinkable in finally leaving him. And so this next chapter, it only feels possible because of what she's already proved to herself. That she can set forth into the unknown and rewrite a future that once upon a time felt predestined. that is all for our show this week if you have any thoughts about this story or anything else you hear on this show or if you just want to shoot us a note you can always email me and the team at uncomfortable at marketplace.org we really love hearing from y'all also if you haven't already do not forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter there's always great recs in there for things to cook or listen to or watch this week i write about my newfound fascination with bird watching and the hefty price tag that comes with certain hobbies you can sign up for our newsletter at marketplace.org slash comfort. This episode was lead produced by Hannah Harris-Green and hosted by Rima Hreis. Hannah and Rima reported and wrote the script together. The episode got additional support from producers Alice Wilder and Peter Balmon-Rosen. Zoe Saunders is our senior producer. Our editor is Karen Duffin. Marque Green is our digital producer with help from Tony Wagner. I'm the team's intern, Kunal Patel. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand at Marketplace. And Francesca Levy is our executive director of digital. And our theme music is by Wonderly. This is Uncomfortable is supported in part by the Sai Sims Foundation, partnering with organizations and people working for a better and more just future since 1985. All right, one more thing before we go. Hello, this is Agent So-and-So with the FBI. Next time on This is Uncomfortable, we face our fears with a couple money horror stories. Your social security number has also been used in a car rental. We found this car with drugs and money in it. Have you had anything to do with that car? It's all tricks, no treats. That's next week on This is Uncomfortable. We'll catch y'all then.